There are passages in the Bible that preach themselves, and there are other ones like the one we have before us today in 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, that take quite a bit of explanation. Turn with me there to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to continue on there. While you're turning there, let me say there are um, some folks here today that I met some of you on the way in this morning, but I see some faces that I don't recognize. If you're visiting with us, um, if, if this is your first time, or even not your first time, but you've never done this before, somewhere around you in your seat, uh, Phil's going to hold one up. There's a little packet like that, and it has a little yellow or chartreuse card inside it, right? We've determined that's chartreuse, right, Phil? And uh, I think it's chartreuse, but we're going to say it's chartreuse. And uh, it really, really helps me if you just put your name down on that, and um, and that will help me to uh, get to know your name. You can hand that to me afterwards. You can put whatever information on it, but just your name would be wonderful if you'll do that uh, and just take a moment and hand it to me on the way out. All right, so we're picking up where we left off in First Peter chapter 3, and I noted last week that this portion of First Peter is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. This is one of those passages of Scripture that's just hard. It seems like every step of the way, uh, it's a difficult passage to interpret. Um, it's uh, Once you get past the interpretation, you may gain an understanding of it, and then it's just as difficult to explain it to somebody else once you think you understand it. So this is just one of those passages we're going to have to be patient and walk through it and try to get to the core of what God's saying to us. Let me let me say also on that note that I'm so thankful. Um, I've been so thankful, and it's been such an encouragement to me over the last couple of weeks as we've, as we've really sort of grappled with the Scriptures. It's been really encouraging to me to know that I'm pastoring a church where we welcome uh, that effort. You know, where we don't, where I don't have to go into my office each week and get to a passage of Scripture and especially the one like we've been in for the last two weeks, and I don't have to think to myself, how can I make this palatable to my people? You know, how can I get to the the, the least uh, the, or the easiest thing and just present that? And, but instead, we get to dig around in it and uh, and deal with the difficult things. And so I'm thankful for that. And those of you who've been here on Wednesday nights walking through um, what it means to be a healthy church member, you remember the first thing that we dealt with on that list? was that you, uh, as a healthy church member, are an expositional listener. I won't explain what that means to those of you who haven't been there, uh, but those of you who have been there know that this is exactly the kind of place where you really need to exercise that discipline. And so let's look at this uh, this passage together and read it beginning in verse 18. Actually, let's back up to verse 17. I think it all sort of fits in one unit. We're going to read verse 17 down through verse 22, and then we're going to focus our attention this morning in verse 20. Through 22. But just so you hear it all, look at verse 17, where Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." 
you, you may want to underline that because I really feel like I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those words today, but I just want you to understand that your salvation, Peter begins the book. In fact, let me show it to you. Go back to chapter 1 where he says in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy that we sang about this morning. Amen. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Your hope and my hope as followers of Jesus is not in any external ritual, but it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Verse 22. Well, let's back up. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. This should sound familiar from Colossians, which Terry just read. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Amen. This is God's Word for us today. I said a minute ago that I wanted to, to, uh, uh, to walk through this and, and dig around in it verse by verse and word by word and get to the meaning, but I also want to remind you of something I said last week, which was uh, we will lose our way in this passage unless we keep the big picture in sight. And so we have to keep the big picture in sight. And the big picture, really, uh, in, in this portion of Peter's letter, and I would say to some extent the entire letter, but, but particularly the portion that we're in now, the, the big picture is found actually in chapter 3, verse 14. So look at verse 14. I just want you to hear it again, because this is really what set the stage for everything that's coming after and for where we're at today, where Peter says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I really believe that that verse is the key verse for us understanding all that's going to come after it in this portion. So remember that, that Peter's writing to these people who are beginning to experience persecution. They're uh, beginning to suffer for their faith in Jesus. And so Peter is encouraging them, verse 14, encouraging them that if they stand firm in their faith, if even if they're suffering for righteousness sake, that God himself is going to bless them through those seasons of suffering. He says it right there at the end that you will be, or in the middle of, of verse 14, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And of course, we understand that the blessing comes from God. So you will be blessed by God. Then in verse 15, he encourages us, remember that while we're suffering, that, that we're to give a good uh, answer. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We went through that and walked through uh, those seeds of hope that we find in First Peter. And then in verse 17, he makes it clear that it may be God's will for believers to suffer at times for their faith in Christ. Stop there for a moment. It's a strange thing. I've noted this along the way in different ways. But it's a strange thing for us to think of the truth that God may will our suffering. I know we don't think of suffering that way most times. We oftentimes think of suffering in that James 1 kind of way, you know, where James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the idea there and the words there carry with it uh, that we have just sort of 
fallen into it. We've been ambushed suddenly. It came out of nowhere to no fault of our own. But again, James goes on to, to explain that by walking through those trials, we grow. Uh, but oftentimes we just think that we're suffering for no good reason or because we're living in a sinful world. But here specifically, Peter says that it can be God's will for us to suffer. Now, I want to ask a question. Why would it ever be God's will for you to suffer? I think that there are many answers to that question, but I think one important answer to that question, and the answer that I think is woven into the fabric of Peter's writing, is that our witness for Christ speaks loudest when we're suffering. You know, people will hear you differently when you're living a good witness for Christ and speaking a good witness for Christ. They will hear that differently or maybe for the first time hear it at all if your witness comes while you're suffering for your faith. Does that make sense? I mean, if, if, if things are, are all good and things are, are, are uh, you know, it's all a, a bowl of cherries in your life and things are good, people may not want to hear what you have to say. They may not be interested. But when you're suffering and yet you remain faithful and your witness remains faithful, people hear you differently in those times. I was reminded today of a story many of you, or, or this week, of a story many of you probably heard. Uh, I think that, that uh, some of you have heard the story of Joseph the Messiah warrior. Have you heard that story? Now, raise your hand if you've heard that story. I may get off. I know, Nick, you've heard this a hundred times. So you raise your hand even if you don't remember because I know you have. But this is a story about a, a man who showed up in Amsterdam in a Billy Graham crusade decades ago and, and, uh, and asked if he could meet with Billy Graham and give his testimony to Billy Graham, and he did. Uh, he was able, because of the weight of his testimony, he was given an opportunity to go and speak uh, to Billy Graham, and his testimony was then later recorded and, and has been shared thousands and thousands, probably millions of times. Uh, apparently, somehow you missed it, but I'm going to share it with you today. When we talk about suffering and it being God's will for us to suffer so that our witness begins to take on a different meaning to the people around us. Let me, let me I'm just going to sort of read it to you. I want to make sure I tell the story right. But Joseph, the Messiah warrior was walking along a hot, dirty road, dusty road, when he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him there in East Africa. He said, then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And the power of the Spirit began transforming his life. And he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, house to house, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. But to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush, but somehow Joseph managed to crawl to a waterhole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received 
from people he had known all his life. And he decided he must have left something out or, or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. And so after rehearsing the message he had heard, he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim, Jesus, He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for a third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. And the ones who had severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. And his entire village came to Christ. Why would God will our suffering? Because our witness speaks loudest when we're suffering. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you with that as we move on from that today. I just want to encourage you with those words because... Because many of you certainly are suffering and, and, and we all know that we will suffer. And at times we may suffer for just specifically for our witness for Christ. But remember that God can and sometimes does will that for the greater good of the gospel and so that people may know Him. And that's the most important thing, brothers and sisters. And so keep your gospel or your gospel witness strong even when you're suffering. So God's will, he says, it may be better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. All this entire passage is helping believers to know that we can faithfully endure suffering. And in the end, we said it last week, in the end, through enduring that suffering, we know that we'll be, be victorious in Jesus Christ. That's the big picture of this passage. And I want you to hold on to that as we sort of start walking through this really difficult passage again. So picking up now in verse 18, we have Peter now giving that encouragement to the believers. He turns his attention to two distinct examples of those who had to suffer uh, for the sake of their faith or suffer through something in life to ultimately be blessed by God. And the first example he gives us, obviously, is Jesus there in verse 18, for Christ also suffered. And Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering and that suffering leading to triumph, that suffering leading to a blessing, that suffering leading to victory. But then he gives us the second example uh, here where, where we look in verse 20. Go down to verse 20. And the second example he gives us is of Noah and his family. He says in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey. And that's linked to the, uh, the spirits that Jesus had preached to. We covered that last week. And in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. How many of you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't even ask, how many of you know the story of Noah? Come on. Right? You know the story of Noah. I don't think 
that I need to give you a, a, a big backstory here, but let's just recap the story of Noah for a moment because he's pointing to this time as an example of another who passed through, uh, passed through a difficult time in order to see victory. So Noah is a, a righteous man living amongst wicked people. Right? Genesis chapter 6, we get to Genesis chapter 6, and in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible tells us that the sinfulness of man had become so intense, the sinfulness of man had become so overwhelming during the days of Noah that God Himself decided to bring a swift and devastating judgment on the earth. And so He told Noah, of course, to, to build an ark and that soon He would flood the entire earth and that He was going to, to kill every other person on the earth, that essentially he was going to start over. And so Noah builds the ark, and, and Noah and his sons and their wives all go into the ark along with the, all the animals that we're so familiar with, and they safely pass through the time that God pours out His wrath on the earth. That's important, that imagery, because, listen, you have to understand that Noah and his family did not avoid the wrath of God. In other words, they were, were not totally absent. It's not as if God just said, hey, you get a pass, uh, and, and you, you, there's, there's nothing that you're going to have to deal with here. Instead, He puts them inside an ark, and the ark itself endures or absorbs the wrath of God while they're safely inside passing through. Does that make sense to you? It's a little bit different than just saying, well, Noah got a free pass. Well, Noah had to pass through that difficult time, and he passed through it in the ark. He passed through, and the ark carries, carries them through that difficult time. Now, this is where it gets really difficult. I think we know that story, but in verse 21, look at verse 21. Peter says in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, to what? To the, to the flood, to Noah and his family passing through the flood in the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What in the world does that mean? I mean, really, I was talking to Phil after the message last week, and I said, if you thought last week was difficult, wait till we get to this week, because he says something that seems absolutely foreign to us, that, that this act that we know of as a... Uh, an ordinance of the church, a religious rite, this act of baptism, he says it corresponds to, to Noah and his family passing through the flood, and it saves you. So I think there's two questions we have to answer this morning as we grapple with this passage that will help us understand it. First, first question, how does baptism correspond to the flood? How is that? Well, I'm going to ask you to follow me here. Okay, One of the things that the New Testament writers will do is that they will often see parallels uh, between Old Testament events and New Testament truths. They don't always see only one parallel. And so, for instance, Paul himself um, spoke of, of imagery like this when he spoke of of baptism, Peter sees this uh, Noah passing through the flood as a correspondence to baptism, and and I think what he's getting at here in the context is 
the, the answer to the question, how does baptism correspond to the flood, is that the answer is that the water present at the flood and the water present in baptism both point to the judgment of God. Now, you may have never thought about that in terms of baptism before. But what do we say when we fill this baptistry up? And I haven't lost y'all yet, have I? I know these two sermons aren't normal sermons, I know, but we've got to deal with the Scripture in front of us. But when, when we fill up the baptismal uh, with water and somebody goes into that water, what do we say that the water represents, or better yet, what do we say happens when a person goes under the water? Somebody help me out here. They die. The water represents a grave, right? And why in the world has anyone ever died? Judgment on sin. So the grave that's represented in baptism, the waters of baptism, just like the waters of the flood, have a correspondence in that they both point to God's judgment on sin. That makes sense? I don't think it's actually as, as difficult as it seems at first. But this, so, so the, the flood waters brought death in the days of Noah, and the baptismal waters also symbolize death, but not just any death. This is important. Not just any death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. So the baptismal waters remind us of the death of Christ, and we know that Christ died in order to absorb the wrath of God against our sins. So the, the water of the flood, the water of baptism, both correspond to one another. They demonstrate God's righteous judgment on sin. They correspond in another way also. They also uh, correspond, and this is just a footnote. You can asterisk in your notes. Uh, they also represent new life and the fact that God has made all things new. You know, when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, the waters had receded. Uh, they experienced a brand new world. God was making all things new. And also, when we rise up out of the waters, we say to someone, when they're placed under, they are buried. The old is buried, and they are raised to what? New life in Christ. And so the waters correspond to one another. Uh, but it's the next statement, and I think you all know, it's the next statement that really gets us tripped up. Look at verse 21 again, where it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, we, we covered that, now saves you. How does baptism save you? That's the second question. How does baptism save us? Let me, let me start with what this definitely does not mean. I think you already know what I'm going to say, don't you? You already know that I'm going to say that even though Peter says baptism saves you, I'm going to say baptism doesn't save anyone which may seem like I'm contradicting Peter, but I don't think I am at all. In fact, I think he's going to make it explicitly clear that he's not speaking about the ritual act of baptism. Do you see that in the, the language there? We'll look at it a little bit more closely, but let me just demonstrate this to you in a way that's clear, I think. 
When I say baptism doesn't save you, the act of baptism doesn't save you, suppose I took the most devout atheist in Western Howard County, I filled the baptistry, uh, uh, tied him, uh, bound him in such a way that he couldn't refuse, and then Nick and I dragged him into the baptistry, and I announced in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I'm baptizing you, and I dunked him under the water and came back out. Is that atheist then saved? He's been baptized. Why isn't he saved? Because the act of baptism doesn't save you, right? And we see that really clearly to the, here where he, where he points us and says that there's, makes it clear that there's no salvific value in the act. Look at verse 21 where he says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. And then he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. And what he's pointing to there is the, the, the actual act the water that you're in, the water that you, uh, that you stand in during your baptism, the water that you're immersed in during your baptism, which, by the way, is exactly uh, the language here and every other place that we find in the New Testament concerning baptism, is that we're immersed fully under the water. And so it's not the physical act of being washed by the water that he's speaking of, that saves us. Instead, he says that the reason that baptism now saves us is because when the believer steps in the waters of baptism, we say that it's a public confession of our appeal to God for Him to forgive us of our sins and an expression before all the people to see that we've been forgiven and we've placed our faith in Jesus who's absorbed the wrath of God in our place. Verse 21 again, listen to it. In light of everything I've just said in the last... 12 minutes. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but here it is, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes. Let me stop for a moment before I even say another word. And let me stop for a moment and and do something I rarely do. Maybe I should do this more. It's, It's the clear teaching. And brothers and sisters, it's the clear teaching of the New Testament. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, as a public profession, as an outward expression of the inward reality that you have already trusted Jesus as your Savior, as a public expression of that, you should, in obedience to the New Testament and the words of Jesus Christ Himself, you should be baptized by immersion. To symbolize that you have died to your old ways and you have been raised again to new life in Christ. Not only that, but that you are also identifying yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus as your hope in this life. So if you haven't done that, you should do it. Like, I know that that can be uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially adults who are uncomfortable about the idea of getting in that water in front of everybody. But just just listen, it's 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 an act of obedience to Jesus to do it. And it's an important thing for you and your church family that you do it. So if you haven't done it, just do it. Amen? If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you've yet to be baptized 
by immersion to symbolize your relationship with Jesus, you should do it. That's my commercial. That's not in my notes. That's my commercial. So baptism symbolizes the truth that we've been buried with Christ and then raised again to new life. We've passed through the waters of death and have emerged victorious on the other side. Do you see the flow of thought here with Peter? As he's walked through this, beginning in verse 14, he said that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so he says, your blessing comes from God. Christ also suffered for sin, and he himself was victorious over all of his enemies. He's our first example. Noah and his family likewise passed through the waters of the flood, and they were protected from God's wrath. They came through victorious on the other side. It's all about victory brothers and sisters, and then us likewise having placed our faith in Jesus Christ and being placed in the waters of baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have also likewise been victorious in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about. As strange as the words are, as difficult as they are to understand, it's all about the truth that for the believer, there will be victory in Jesus. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Let's pause for a moment and just sort of bask in the picture of God's amazing grace that's present in these verses. I know it's been a complicated passage. If you're visiting here last week and this week or one or the other or both or whatever, uh, this is not a typical way that I preach. These passages are difficult. They're hard to follow. They're hard to understand. They're, they're so technical. But there's such a beauty in this passage that I don't want us to miss. Just such a, a beautiful picture that I believe is present in this passage. And that's that Jesus Himself, and not only in this passage, but in other places even more specifically than this one, Jesus Himself is the ark that carries us safely through the waters of God's wrath. You know, don't, don't miss that. It's, it's just sort of there in the, in the background, in the picture here. But it's the truth that we see when we talk about being rescued by God. Noah and his family experience the wrath of God and they pass through safely because they're covered by the ark. And you and I likewise pass through and are sheltered from the wrath of God. It's not that God stayed His hand. Right? I mean, we have to understand this. That God didn't just say, you know what? It's okay. I love you. It's okay. You, you've, you've trusted in Jesus. No wrath. Brothers and sisters, the truth, the deeper eternal truth is that God did pour out His wrath on every sin we've committed. Just like the raindrops fell and the waters rose Every sin that we committed, the wrath of God was poured out on them. But just like the ark 
The waters fell on the ark and Noah was safe inside. The wrath of God against our sin fell on Jesus and we're safe in Him. He's the ark. The ark of safety for us. We are in Christ and Jesus was the ark of safety 2,000 years ago on the cross, but it doesn't end there for us, does it? He remains that ark of safety for us today when the storms of suffering rage in this life. Jesus is the ark of safety. Amen? When, when, when in this life persecution comes, Peter tells us that when persecution comes, we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We hold Him up as holy in our lives and He is our ark of safety even in our suffering and persecution when our bodies fail and this life is, is coming to an end and we know that we're facing the presence of God. This is the most important one. When we stand in the presence of God, Jesus Himself is the ark of safety for us. There's no fear. There's no condemnation because Christ Himself is our advocate. He's victorious. He conquered our sin. Verse 22, I don't want to leave this out. Verse 22, He, Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. He's victorious And so are we. It's good news that we know that the one who has authority over all things, over all governments, over all delegates of His authority in this world, and also over every angel in heaven, and also over every demon in hell, and also over Satan himself, this one who has authority over all things is the one who is our ark of safety. Let me close to you close today by just rereading Psalm 27. The way that came about this morning, that's a, a song that we've never sang before as a worship team, but as I was wrapping up my message this week, the psalm itself uh, came to my mind and I thought, what a good psalm to read. And then we sang it together. But I want you to hear the words again in light of what we've been taught from Peter in this passage about our victory as God's people. Listen to Psalm 27 and I want you to hear it in light of your difficulties, your problems, your persecution, your suffering your discouragement in this life and in this world. Listen to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Can you hear Peter even thinking of a passage like this? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises against me, yet I will be confident. Are you confident in Christ? You ought to be. He's victorious. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Listen, the psalmist and Peter and Paul and every other saint, this is our refrain. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's victorious. Amen.